Hi, everyone. This is Vanessa Richardson. I am executive director of California Groundbreakers. It's a very lofty title, but big aspirations. Uh, for those of you who haven't tuned in yet to a podcast or gone to a live event, I'll give you a little quick spiel. We're based here in Sacramento. It's a officially a civic engagement organization, but in plain English, basically we're a group of people that put on events in fun, cool venues around Sacramento, highlighting innovative people doing innovative things in Sacramento, the Northern California region, and the state of California, because there's a lot going on here. Sacramento is the capital to the fifth or sixth largest economy, depending on the data, in the world. And therefore, we think we should own that and really highlight what's going on here and around the state. We're going to do something new with this podcast. It's actually a quote unquote mini podcast that's tied into a live event that we're going to be doing later on in October. So most of the events, well, all the events that we do live are recorded for podcast. But sometimes we can't always get the people that we want on the live event to be there or for whatever reason they can't make it or there's just not enough room. So for this event coming up, we're going to be doing three or ideally four podcasts with people who are tied into the main theme of the event. That event is one of our Food for Thought series. We're taking a look at innovators in the farm to fork scene around Sacramento and California. That's on everything food, farming, beer, wine, ag, uh, everything tied to that. And we've been doing a few of them every month, once a month. Uh, and the next one in October is all about beer. So it's kind of like a drink for thought. Um, but we're going to be looking at uh, the brewing of beer. And we're going to be t talking to two brewmasters, Steve Dresler, who's the just retired head brewer of Sierra Nevada Brewery, which I guess arguably put California craft beer on the map. And then alongside him is, quote unquote, a young whippersnapper named Mike Mraz, who's based out of El Dorado Hills, a home brewer who, I guess, 13 months after starting his business as a professional, he won two gold medals at the California State Fair. So these are two gentlemen that have a lot to say. But there's a whole bunch of other people in the Sacramento area that have been doing a lot of really interesting things with beer. And one of them who we have here today has actually been a supporter of California Groundbreakers since the beginning. He's always provided the beer pretty much at the events. He's been on a panel that we did last year on California craft beer. And his name is J.E. Pano from Roostaller. So many of you know him or have had his beer or been to his tap room. And at this panel that we did last year in September at the barn, he was really very informative about beer, but I didn't get to ask him a lot about the ingredients that go into his beer because J.E. is pretty unique in terms of what goes into his beer is a different, I guess, from what a lot of other people in California put into their beer. And I guess the reason why I thought of J.E. for this podcast uh, ties back to a video he made back in November 2014 and posted on Roostaller's uh, Facebook page. It was a video of him in his car the title of the video was called Thought for Today. And he started off by saying, we're a farm, not a factory. We grow beer. And we do that because we have the opportunity. You can't do this anywhere else. We can. He's, I think he's meaning Californians. Can California. Sacramentans. Sacramentans. 
And we feel like we're just at the beginning of a very long journey of unlocking the full potential of the hops we can grow in this region. We know that we have an opportunity to grow the highest quality beer in the world using the most flavorful, most aromatic hops. So speaking of the most interesting beers in the world, I am drinking one of them along with J.E., We've had a couple of beers uh, because for my first podcast, I do kind of need to relax. J.E.'s a pro at this, so he's going to lead this conversation. But I wanted to I wanted to ask the first question based on that statement that you made in your Facebook video about, you know, the most flavorable, most aromatic hops that can make some of the most interesting beers in the world. Um, if I have read correctly, California used to make a lot of hops or grow a lot of hops yeah. uh, the most in the u.s at one point is that correct yeah so the hops came here in the 1850s and 60s and california was quickly the the uh kind of growing region for hops in the united states and ended up becoming over three four thousand acres of hops had the largest hop ranch in the world where at that was actually in Pleasanton. So there's a hop ranch road in Pleasanton. The largest single hop ranch in the world was out there. Uh, of course, Hopland up in Sonoma County was a big hop growing region. Is that how it got its name? It, that's how it got its, its name. Uh, it has a very similar climate to Sacramento in that it's very hot. It doesn't get the ocean air uh, cooling it off at night. Uh, and the Sacramento Valley from Galt all the way up to Wheatland was... Uh, Three, four thousand acres of hops, and supplied the majority of uh, American breweries their hops, and even shipped some hops back to the old world. So, Ashley, let me let me go back and ask, like the history of hops, even farther back than that. How did whoever look at this, what looks kind of like a weed in many ways, and decide this could be usable, and it got turned into beer? How did that come about? Do you know? Yeah, I've focused mo most of my history on uh, from Daniel Flint on. Daniel Flint was the uh, the uh, gentleman who brought hops from New York State. So hops came from the old world to New York State. Like Eastern Europe and Germany? And Germany and England. Okay. And so he brought the first cuttings to California and um, and then also grew some native hops and, and actually wrote the book. So there's actually a, a small pamphlet that was put about put out by the Department of Agriculture trying to promote and encourage farmers and teach farmers how to grow hops in California. And that was produced by Daniel Flint. So and that was I think in the eighteen fifties. So that's kind of the point that I focused on from there forward. Um, I do know that when obviously the Europeans brought hops over to the United States, and hops uh, originally were very prevalent in upstate New York, but moved quickly eastward or westward due to uh, mildew. So it was very humid summers uh, up in upstate New York and across the Midwest, and hops, those are one of the things hops don't like. They cannot handle mildew very well or humidity. They're very susceptible to mildew. So uh, when finding the kind of the dry Mediterranean climate of California, they thrived. So dry heat. Dry heat, yep. And now 
the history of hops in terms of gold rush and afterwards it was just gangbusters here we grew hops like crazy well we did but it wasn't just because we could grow them it was also in conjunction with that we became the beer capital of the west coast so if you look at sacramento's history it was founded by a uh, swiss person john sutter he invited his german austrian buddies here um we were at the confluence of two rivers, the American and the Sacramento River. So the two rivers flooded on a regular basis. So the soil was very fertile. Hops and barley grew like weeds. We had a great source of fresh water that was cleaned every, every naturally, the American River. And we were Germans, Austrians, Swiss. So you know how to make beer. You got water, hops, and barley. They knew what to do. And then someone was nice enough to have the Transcontinental Railroad end in downtown Sacramento. And at that point, we were uniquely qualified to harvest ice. And with the advent of the refrigerated rail car, Sacramento now was uniquely qualified to harvest ice and snow all winter long and then brew and deliver fresh beer all, all summer long. And har harvest the ice and snow all winter long and then brew and deliver fresh beer all summer long. And so the two grew together. In other words, both the local brewing community, we had over 10 breweries on the grid in the 1880s and 1890s, we ended up having the largest brewery west of the Mississippi River, which was the Buffalo Brewery, which was actually a cooperative of several brewers in Sacramento, of which Captain Frank Rustar was the youngest member. He was about 30 years old and he was the managing partner of it. And so we had this robust brewing community and of course they needed hops and so they worked well together. And uh, if you look at that era, you know, I joked there were no Super Bowl ads back then. So how did all those little brewers differentiate themselves? Well, they had to make better beer. How do you make better beer? Part of it was you, you, you the ice helped because you could, you could brew it cooler. You could control the temperature. You could deliver it fresher. It wouldn't spoil. But also they had great hops and barley. And so, um, you know, together the, the farming capabilities of the Sacramento area enabled Sacramento to become the beer capital of the West Coast and the largest hop growing region in the world. And this was all prior to Prohibition. And then what happened after Prohibition or during that time? Well, Super Bowl ads. So basically what happened pre and post Prohibition, and really it, it was the Industrial Revolution. So after World War II, there were about 400, there were 2,000 2, breweries uh, at the advent of Prohibition, 1918. And at 1945, the end of World War, there were 400 breweries. And about a decade or two later, there were about 70 breweries in the United States. And the majority of those were Bud Coors and Miller. And we'd gone from 2,000 to 400 to 70 to three, primarily because of industrialization, mass. And, and, and those the two forces were the television. And the second one was the Eisenhower interstate system. So if you were a brewery, if you were Bud Coors and Miller, what they were saying in their boardrooms was, okay, we need to save money on glass, hops, barley, material, and we need to buy more Super Bowl ads and buy more trucks. If we can do those things, we can deliver beer more effectively over a larger area and lower the cost and own more of the market. And that's over, it took them many years to do that, but over decades they were able to do that. And of course, uh, that's uh, had an effect on the hop industry in California. So what's the hop industry in California look like now? So, um, like I said, we were somewhere in the three to 4,000 acre range. 
around the turn of the century. And uh, in the while those large breweries were trying to move more of their more of their investment into marketing dollars, uh, the hop industry obliged. So in the 50s and 60s, slowly the hop industry moved out of California to lower cost areas where they could j make just good enough quality to flavor a, a Budweiser and then the newest revelation of Bud Light. And so the industry moved lock, stock, and barrel up to eastern Washington state where there is plenty of water, land was cheap, and uh, enough sunlight to make the hops grow for a Budweiser. But not much of a dry heat up there. Uh, in the, in, no, on the eastern side. On the side, eastern side, the yeah, eastern side okay. it's quite dry. So okay. um, they, did, they didn't have the problems with the humid, humidity. What, the big difference is, is that the, uh, they don't get quite as hot and they don't stay quite as hot as long. Okay. So, but it was just, but, but because they have the longer days, they get enough sunlight summertime just to get the hops enough. But um, so California went, you know, the last commercial crop was grown actually out in Slough House by a gentleman by the name of George Signorati. And Huel Hauser did a little expo on him. And this last crop was done sometime in the late 90s. And it was, here's a little trivia question. It was, it was purchased by a gentleman by the name of uh, Fritz Maytag. Do you know who Fritz Maytag that is? Na that name always keeps popping up when I start, when I do research yeah. on beer. So Fritz, of course, was the owner at the time of Anchor Steam. So Fritz bought the last kind of commercial crop of hops grown by George Signorati in the late 90s. And uh, he was only growing about two acres at the time. Um, and uh, we are currently in California. We have about 150 acres of hops. Um, there's a couple large farmers. The largest are the Kaczynski family out of Lake County. They have about 30 plus acres up there and they're quite um, pioneers in a sense and that they took this on about 10 years ago and have really spearheaded a lot of uh, a lot of efforts. We learned a lot from them and, and used their hops for a number of years. Uh, of course, Sierra Nevada has, um, I'm not exactly sure, but probably somewhere in the 10 to 20 acre range and then um and then the sacramento area we have about 15 to 20 acres now how many of them are yours well we have about seven seven and a half um we work with two other local farmers that have some of the heirloom hops from the area and they each one they each combined have about eight so it's interesting to me is that in terms of the brewers or the the yeah the the brewers who actually make and sell their beer it's sierra nevada in california it's sierra nevada and you are there well they other... actually are responsible for growing their hops yeah okay so that's interesting to me is it seems like you are in a unique spot where you grow your own hops and you put them in your own beer so you look at the focus of where the hops are grown not where the the beer is made in the factory and so that was interesting to me in terms of why you why did you decide to do this when it seems like many brewers just buy their hops from uh oregon washington and and you're you're yeah. going a different way why why you well i think a couple reasons number one i think um i grew up my family grows grapes and i've worked in some wineries so i saw the 
uh, collaboration, if you will, between uh, the winemakers and the vineyard and um, how, and I tasted how, you know, what we did in the field and, and how the weather was, how that affected the, the same crop year after year in a different way. Um, on a, you know, we were challenged by Daryl Cordy. Um, you know, we, our first bottles said Roostaller or Sacramento on them. And he said, you don't deserve those two words unless you, you use, use local hops. And so he knew that there was an opportunity and that's why I say that an opportunity. Um, and I think he pushed us in a direction to where we are like that first maybe winemaker that walked down the Silverado Trail uh, in Napa Valley and tried to encourage a farmer to pull out his plum trees and move his cattle and, and plant Cabernet. And, you know, Napa took four generations of collaboration between the two, the brewer or the winemaker and the grower. And I think that's that was the opportunity that Daryl kind of challenges within I saw and um, I didn't quite understand why no one talked about the ingredients in beer you know we talk about especially in California having lived in lots of places in California we talk about where it's grown and who grows it and yet with beer we talk about who brews it and you don't talk about the the stuff and so it kind of confused me. And, and actually, I think if you, I've thought about it, and I'm a pretty simple guy. So my conclusion on why it's like that is because the definition of perfect beer comes that we have in America comes from the German and the English. And perfection to German and English is consistency, monarchy rules, the dif- distance between two parts of a BMW. That's perfection. And nothing wrong with that. And so perfect beer is something that can be replicated. How do you replicate something using? natural ingredients that vary every year based upon climate you have to con- you have to control the ingredients you can't try to express the ingredients and a stark contrast of that perspective is the french you know perfection of the french is that they they celebrate v- variety and variation and change they they love that yesterday was better than today and they'll celebrate that hoping that tomorrow will be better than the th- either one of the previous two days. And so the perfection of the French, a celebration of variation, uh, comes out in their liquid of choice, wine. And then if you take it one step further, you look at Belgian beer, it's the romance of the French applied to beer. And that's why Belgian beer doesn't, breaks all the rules. So, you know, I guess Daryl kind of pushed us in a direction, but we also, I I think I naturally tend to lean towards you know if today is going to be the same as yesterday then I'm not very interested if we're not moving the needle if we're not pushing it if we're not taking it someplace that we haven't gone before then I'm not really it doesn't really get me excited in the morning and um, you know this is gonna we're gonna there's gonna be a lot of failure be a lot of you know people are gonna be confused we're going in a different direction and that's um, what we can do, and I think that's to some degree personally what me and the Roostaller team, and frankly what Captain Frank Roostaller did in the 1850s, we went a different direction. So for people who want to know where you grow your hops, I think basically you drive down Highway 80, you pass UC Davis, the next exit off of there is what, Kidwell? 
Kidwell Road, and that's there's a Roostaller sign, and yep. you can honk. And so there's what six, seven acres there. Yep. So I had the I had the privilege of seeing a little bit of the hop harvest, the most recent one. Usually September or so is when it grows, and I had to get up at the before the crack of dawn to see it at its finest. But uh, I got a little sense of what the harvesting process is. I took photos and videos, and I'm going to try and do my best to turn that into something for the website because it's a really rich visual. Experience to see hops grown. It, it seems like a, kind of a different crop in a way compared to others, other kind of crops that are grown. So yeah. we've had a lot of people go, "What kind of peas are you guys growing? Uh, what variety of peas? Yeah, because they're yeah. grown on vines." So can you explain, you know, briefly? I guess the 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 timeline or the how hops are grown and what the harvesting process is from, you know, from putting them in the ground to uh, taking them out of the ground and turning them into beer. Yeah. So they they're actually very similar to grapes. So there is a part that uh, is in the ground that we call the rhizome or the hill. And out of that, every April, um, it wakes up. So it goes dormant after harvest time. And then in April, it wakes back up and it produces some shoots. And then we train those shoots up and give it the opportunity as the sun comes out in the heat, heat of the summer to grow actually a foot a day. So in when it's 100 degrees in June and July, those vines will grow a foot a day. And then by about midsummer, they've reached their apex. So they somehow this have this internal clock where they say, okay, we're going to stop growing up and we're going to grow out. So after midsummer, they start to fill out. And then the last thing that gets truly uh, matures is the flower. So we're actually harvesting the hop flower and in the hop flower is a yellow pollen um, that then is what gives beer its aroma and flavor so it's called lupulin is the name of that and then i i rem- uh, well, and then after harvest it goes dormant again and so uh, it's quite an interesting rhythm in that we it's like you sleep for six months and you work for, for six months and um part of that i I think is quite there's a rhythm to it it's almost like uh, you know when we were in elementary school the rhythm of you know the time to work and a time to rest and and it's uh, it's 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 wonderful and then once you pick them off the vines yeah. or take the cut the vines right yeah. you take them to a picker picker yeah in your case I think this one you named in a um, honor of Daryl Cordy, yeah. who, for those who don't he know, runs Cordy in, Brothers. Yeah, Daryl, so we named the picker. It's a 40-year-old uh, German-made uh, hop picker. So we feed the vines into the picker, and it, rip, it strips the leaves and the cones off and then works to separate the leaves and the cones. And it's an amazing little machine, and the fact that it was built so long ago and still works is amazing. But we did name it in honor, Dar- in honor of Daryl. <laughs> Because I told him, I said, you will live in infamy, what you have caused here. <laughs> he wasn't too impressed by that. Oh. I think he wants to be remembered for more for more uh, honorable things, but so well, be it. <laughs> you'll, I guess, and that's a pretty small one, isn't it? It's, it well, looks huge, but yeah, they, it's, it's the start. Daryl is starting up. The... It's big enough for 15 acres, but if we had 3,000 acres or a couple hundred acres, it would not be enough, yeah. And then after that, they are... Put into a kiln, hop kiln. Yep, hop kiln. So they're dried. And then? So we dry them at about 120 degrees. 
and then once the moisture is the majority of the moisture is out we let them cool off a little bit just to ambient temperature and then we bale them so baling is we're compacting the hops together into a bag and then we take that compressed bale into a into a cold box and we'll store them in freezing temperature so the funny part and this is kind of i didn't really realize this till later on but the two things that give us all life which is air and water are the two things that also cause us to degenerate so as soon as we pick that hop we give the hop as much water and light as we possibly can until we harvest it and then after we harvest we have to remove the moisture and we have to remove the air from it as quickly as possible or they will mold and spoil and that actually happened this harvest we didn't dry about the first day's picking, it was about 750 pounds. We didn't dry it fast enough. And when we came back to it, it had, had molded. Half of the hops had molded, so we threw them all out, unfortunately. Uh, that sounds very frustrating. Yeah, I mean, and the amount of work to produce that quantity of hops is hard, and uh, and they were good quality, and so it was unfortunate. So this is the sixth harvest that you've sixth had. Sixth and I remember day. you have a hat for every harvest, and you've just yeah. retired this one. I just did. It's September 25th. So right now they are, are they in deep, are they being cooled off right now? Yeah, they're actually in a refrigeration right now and they, they'll go to a freezer at the end of this week. So is this, how is this harvest different from the past five? Are there any unique or notable ways uh, that it has been memorable or infamous in any yeah. way or a, a boom harvest or, you know, despite the mold? Yeah, um, well, the good news is we didn't have, you know, hops are, susceptible to mildew and and mites and so mildew we're pretty protected especially in Dixon because of the wind so we don't have big problems there mites we always have a big problem and one of the big you know successes this year we only had to spray once for mites two years ago we had to spray four times and and mites when we spray for mites you know we are not organic we are sustainable so which means that I sustain the right to uh, save my crop and so the, we were uh, the thing is mites can can destroy a hop crop in about two days so we got to a point where we felt like we needed to spray something and we were able to catch it early enough so that what we sprayed wasn't too powerful but it did slow the mites down so we did get a nice crop we got a great crop the biggest challenge this year frankly ironically was political so we had a great group of, of women that helped us last year and they, as as they normally do, they go home for the uh, for the for the winter to rest, and then after the election in November, they decided not to come back. And so that, you know, that we had to scramble labor-wise, and um, you know, kids that sit in school all day are just not used to the hundred-degree weather, and so. Um, and it was a really hot summer. This. And it was a really hot summer, and they're not used to being on their knees and cutting with machetes aggressively all day long and so you know but we found a few really real warriors that you know they were going to learn and they did and it's uh we had a great team that that made a great crop and we didn't really know what quality crop we were going to have until kind of the last couple of weeks and turned out to be uh, probably our best year so and from a the yield was maybe not the highest but the quality I think was because and the way I can tell that is um, typically with a dried hop or even a wet hop you have to grab the hop and squeeze it and place it close to your nose to smell it 
these hops you just walked by them and you could smell them i uh, yes it was it was very intoxicating i got a little i don't know if drunk is the right word That's but just good. walking through the hops yeah. i could really smell it and i was curious whether the this year's rainy atmospheric river season did anything because it seems like the past six years you pretty much had to deal with drought in more or less and this year was like a banner year for rain and did that change in any way the way you well when you started putting yeah. the ground or harvesting them so the you know the this is a bigger subject but northern california doesn't have a drought problem southern california has a drought problem and it's 100 percent political so the way you steal water from northern california is when you have none of your own is you declare a drought and then you get the political power to steal more northern california water so the most of the water that people see or that is up here it doesn't no one sees it's in aquifers so we're very, we've always been very close to the Poudre Creek Aquifer that flows out of Lake Berryessa, and so we've always had plenty of water. Um, the, we thought maybe the quality of the water would change. We do have uh, some chemicals that are high, natural chemicals that are high in our water. We thought this year maybe they would be diluted, but there was no change in those. So, um, so we didn't really have much of an impact, either positive or negative, from the the uh, from the rainy winter. Uh, what we did, our two farming partners though, were dramatically affected. One one is on the Sacramento River, and the other one's on the Cosumnes River. And the Orville Dam uh, caused the uh, farmer on the Sacramento River who grows walnuts to lose about 200 acres of walnuts. Uh, very very. Uh, uh, mature walnut orchard and then the farmer on the Cosumnes River so that was Kalen Lang and the Lang Orchards in, in along the Sacramento River and then the Utterbacks Dave and Dia out in Slough House are along the Cosumnes River which is the last uh, Northern California River it, it, it's the only Northern California River that's not dammed so they had their levee broke and their hops were under a couple feet of water all the way till May. So both of them had some challenges and uh, David and Dia, they actually had a shorter crop because of that. Um, so, you know, water, a lot of it or uh, too little of it, it's always a challenge. Um, and it's a very complicated, you should do a discussion on water politics. That could take a couple days, I think. Well, Ashley J.E., I had one in May. Actually at Graciano, so they had their own beer, but it was a really good discussion, yeah. and there's the Delta Tunnels. But ironically, yeah. when you mentioned the labor, uh, this is an advance notice, but in February, we are going to do a food for thought specifically on how immigration issues are affecting oh, yeah. ag in California. It's going to be a big deal. So February, everyone. Yeah, I think I remember going to a class uh, in grape growing about 20 years ago, and they were talking about how mechanized most of the wine regions were in the world already and why california wasn't and the professor was like why is california not as mechanized as australia and france and spain and italy and we all are like we didn't really know what to say and then he just said mexico that there's this huge labor pool that we have access to and they're incredibly hard workers and none of those other countries have the access to that and so it enabled us to do things not just in the wine industry, but really in agriculture entirely that most parts of the world can't do. And it's a real benefit and we can't take, uh, we can't take it for granted. 
You mentioned the Utterbacks and Slough House. You mentioned Lake County. You mentioned, you may not have mentioned, but I think I remember this from visiting you all, Elkhorn Slough in West Sacramento. Yeah, the Lang family. How many suppliers do you, of, how many hop farmers do you work with for your own beer besides yeah. yours? Well, we now are primarily uh, ourselves and the Utterbacks and Slough House and the Lang family in Elkhorn Slough, which is just north of West Sacramento. We do still, on occasion, get a little bit from the Kaczynskis up in Lake County. And then there is one hop. So hops, like most things, have trademarks and things like that. So they're not called trademarked, but they're called private hops. So a lot of some of the more unique hops that uh, are somewhat popular right now, like Amarillo and uh, Citra and things like that, those are actually crossbred hops by and that that are private and so they're they're the ability to grow them and sell them is controlled by either a university or typically private companies and that's a different discussion but uh, so there is one variety citra that we use for some of our beers that we have to source out of state because I believe that if we grew it that in the middle of the night a black hop helicopter would come and five guys would jump out of the helicopter on ropes with shovels and they'd come and they'd dig up all the rhizomes that we had and then drive fly back to to washington so <laughs> um you know we but the cool thing is uh i don't think we need to do that um what we found is that first of all the langs in elkhorn and the Utterbacks and slough house have a hop some of the they have some of the heirloom hops that grew here 60, 70, 100 years ago. So, and those aren't available anywhere. So from those two families, we have a very distinct, unique hop. We as brewers need to learn how to brew better with them, and we're still working on that. And then the other thing is that we've taken uh, hops, same variety hops grown on our farm and several other farms in, in the greater Sacramento area, and we realize that we have that there is terroir. So um, it does matter where hops are grown locationally. So we don't need to worry about the hop that's crossbred by some guy up in Washington state and worry about how to get it here. What we are focused on is how to grow the best hops we can, not for yield, but for quality. And then luckily we just got to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, okay, brewer, now let's brew a beer that highlights and gives that hop an opportunity to shine without having to worry about having to replicate it. In other words, we can take that romantic French approach, which is let's celebrate what's growing on this little plot of land, what we have, and let's give it the best chance of having a character and, and an opportunity. And let's not worry about whether we can replicate this for the next 120 years. And so it is kind of back to farming, which is a celebration of a moment. And you deal with whatever characteristics you have at the time, whether it's labor, water, lack of water, too much water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you just do the best you can with it. And at the end of the day, and you tasted this, at the end of the day of farming, beer tastes good. So another video that you put on the Roostaller 
page about three months ago, you announced a taste test, and it's not about the beer, it's about the question. And you held up four beers in a case, and the case said, does it matter where the hops are grown? Yeah, it doesn't or matter less. where hops are grown. So you had four beers, the same recipe, all brewed on the same day, all use Cascade hops, but the only difference is where those Cascade crops are grown and the drinker had to decide. I was wondering what were the results of that taste test? Did you get any, any noticeable uh, feedback? feedback? Well, everyone, uh, there wasn't one person that who did all the, the side by side that didn't um, come out of it saying, yeah, these taste different. So that was our goal. Now, now everyone had different favorites and some, which, which is fine. That wasn't our goal. Our goal was to say, was basically to ask that question, does it matter where hops grow? In other words, does terroir, does does local have to be where the brewery is? Because you go into a grocery store and you want to get wine, you want to get local wine, well, that's where the grapes are grown, not crushed. And local cheese is where the, the goats graze, not where their milk was processed. And local peaches are where they're picked, not packed. But only on the beer aisle does local mean where the factory is and not where the ingredients are. And so this kind of this beer was just meant to open up a a different discussion. Does it matter? And, you know, we don't feel like we have all the answers. We feel like we're just at the beginning of a 30-year pull trying to figure out how to grow great beer. And we're not there yet. Can you personally tell, after so many years of doing this, can you uh, tell the difference between a beer made with Cascade hops from Washington and and your own hops, is it that noticeable? Uh, or does it depend on other factors? Like, can you tell a difference between local hops? Just Is there a certain smell or taste or something in there that makes it unique and distinct and California grown? Yeah, I think, so the four areas we had representation on the taste, the answer is yes. The four areas we had represented was our farm in Dixon, the Utterback Farm and Slough House, which are 40 miles apart, only a couple hundred feet different in elevation, pretty much similar climates. We both get Delta Breeze, hot days. Uh, the third farm was the Kaczynski's up in Lake County. They're up at 700 foot elevation, volcanic soil, no Delta Breeze, very different climate. So ours to me, us and the Utterbacks were somewhat similar. Uh, the, the Kaczynski's were quite different and then the fourth variety was or the fourth location is what we call what was Oregon Washington Idaho Canada we call them orphans because um, we don't we know what variety they are and what year they were grown or harvested but we don't know where they were grown or who grew them and that's what the majority of the, the brewing industry uses and that one was completely different from the other three as well so uh, I think what I noticed more maybe not what you did get a sense for the growing terroir, the soil and the climate. They definitely come out. And that the, the, the ones closer to California or to Sacramento to me were a little kind of mellower and happier and had a little more sunshine in them, I guess. And the ones as you went further north under more harsh, both in Lake County and up in Washington State were, were a little bit more uh, bitter, a little more uh, stringent. They, they were not as complex. They were more kind of one line versus kind of a symphony where there's multiple kind of things going on. So, But I'm definitely biased, so you ought to try it yourself. But it's interesting though that most of the breweries around here, when they get their hops, it is from that area, Oregon. Well, like I said, it's most... because 
because that's where they're well it's, it's not just because that's where they're available they could get they could source hops locally um, I believe it goes back to what's the definition of a good brewer or per, is the definition of perfection to a brewer and that is consistency and there's there's not enough hops being grown um, in Sacramento or in California to consistently make the same beer day in and day out so what you have to do is to, in order to control the characteristics of, a, of an ingredient you have to blend them with from blend them from a large pool and so when you're taking hops from thousands of acres in four states grown by hundreds of farmers and you pull them all together you're going to average out the peaks and the valleys and you you get consistency but you sacrifice character yeah it sounds like milk it's called that's what it's milk it's dairy ha, wine i mean yeah. how do you you average you can't it's a McDonald's Big Mac. How do you make this Big Mac taste the same all over the world using different cows, eating different stuff with different climates? You average out the peaks and the valleys. And there's nothing wrong with it. If your goal is consistency, that's what you do. And if that's what the beer drinkers are, are measuring breweries by, then that's what brewers have to do. And I, there's no, it's not a good or a bad thing. It is just a thing. Um, but there are, is another way, but it's a less traveled way. And so, yes, I mean, what is stopping us, California, from growing the amount of hops that we used to and having brewers here in California take those hops and use them and market in a way like we are more local or state-grown hops? What's what's the roadblock? Well, I think the biggest one is you've got this five to 700-year precedent of this is what good beer is. So... Brewers are trained that way. Uh, beer drinkers are accustomed to it. If they try Bud Light in London, New York, Hong Kong, or Singapore, it's all going to taste the same. And now you can have Lagunitas IPA in all those places and expect, and you should expect it to taste the same. So, so there's this historical precedent that that I think holds us back. The other thing is is that farming is very different from brewing. You know, you brew day one and an ale you can typically have it ready to sell in two weeks farming is you got to put something in the ground and it takes you three years before you get a crop from it and it's hard work and you've got all these multiple factors that you can't control you got political factors and climate factors where brewing is all about controlling you have german-made brew systems and you have thermostats that are tested and it's all about controlling something. And farming is all about, you know what, I'm gonna do the best I can, but I can't control everything. And so they're very, very different roles with different mentalities. And it may, I mean, I don't, ex people ask me all the time, so hey, congratulations, there's a revival of hop growing in, in California. I was like, well, you know, okay, there's still 25,000 acres of hops in Washington and 3,000 acres in in Oregon, I mean, I don't, 150 acres, I mean, we grow the world's highest quality blank. We grow the highest quality blank in the world of everything. And, you know, 150 acres of hops to me is not, and so I don't think we'll ever get to 3,000 in my lifetime. All I want to do is to get more than Michigan. Michigan has 300 acres of hops. And the only reason they got 300 acres of hops is the government has funded the hop growing industry because they know the car industry is dying. But 
reality is that Michigan shouldn't grow anything. They have been ripping apart their water and their soil for the last couple hundred years to provide us all, you know, nice vehicles. But I mean, come on, we got to have more hops in the state of Michigan. Nothing against my brothers from Michigan, but you know, that's my personal goal. A little more hops than Michigan. <laughs> but California seems to be a very innovative state and we have, uh, we count ourselves as being trendsetters in terms of food and cuisine. Do you think that we can, you can change our opinion about beer being standardized and try something a little different? And if so, how do you recommend that we do that where people are local hops and different types of beers getting getting drinkers on board and getting the brewers on board? What would you like to see happen? If, and is that realistic? Well, I think what you're asking me is, is what would I like yeah, what's your vision beer, and the what's the reality? Drinker, really, the the beer drinker's attitude and and mindset has to change, and I don't think that happens quickly. I think that takes time. The good news is I'm not in a rush, so I would never have started growing hops had I been in a rush. So I'm not in a rush. I think they wanna they want it to be more than talk, and you know the. I think they want to go out and see the hops and touch the hops and taste the hops and taste to see if it matters. And I don't think we've done enough, frankly, to to sway enough people to where it matters. So, you know, I don't, I, I think that's on us. We got to do a better job of growing. We got to do a better job of brewing. We got to do a better job of providing an opportunity for people to learn and to see and to taste what a hop can be like. But I do believe this that we have the opportunity to grow the highest quality hops in the world. I do believe that. And so the problem is not the opportunity. The problem is us, me. Me. Me, me, me being me. And me that, the beer drinker? No, it's not the beer drinker because I think the beer drinkers got their mindset on, I just want to drink good beer, which is what all their, if that's what their, if that's where they're at, that's great. Hey, I want to drink good beer. That's a great, that's a great, that's better than I'm going to drink what my grandfather drank or what I've been drinking for 25 years. At least they're thinking about it. So I'll take thinking about it. But we at Roostall are both the farming side and the, and the brewing side. We have to get better and brew a better beer that um, makes it where people are like, you know what? I'm not going back to that other stuff. And I can't wait to see what the 1881 tastes like in 2018 and 2019 because it's going to change and I'm our you know that's so it's on us do you think that we can be the Napa Valley of hops again if we were already uh can that happen uh can you convince others to do that along with you is that happening you mean to convince other farmers farmers brewers marketing people in the yeah. area I mean it sounds like it takes a village well, I, I think, it, again, quality has to lead and the quality has to be there. And you could say that, well, uh, it's the quality's not there yet, Jay. And I would say, well, that's okay. It's not for lack of trying. And so we're just going to keep working at it. And again, you know, again, like the first winemaker that walked down the Silverado Trail, I mean, they undoubtedly saw the potential of Napa Valley. They saw how it cooled off at night. They saw the quality of the soil. They saw the volcanoes on both sides of the valley. They said, hey, this should do it. But it took them years and years and years and generations to do it. And so 
uh, again, uh, we're not in a rush. We don't mind. Uh, we'll get there when we get there, but we're going to enjoy the process. Last and we're going to be thankful for anybody that's, you know, everyone that's been cheering us on. And there have been a lot. And I, you know, I don't want to say that we've convinced people because I don't, I don't know if that's the case or not, but we have a lot of people that are cheering us on really loudly. And, you know, it's not just the guys honking to us when we're out at the farm, but I mean, they buy our beer, they go to the restaurants that serve our beer. Um, they come to our tap rooms, they pat us on the back. They encourage us when we're driving around with, in our trucks. And, uh, that means a lot. So no regrets. Six years ago. Well, I would say, I would say not no regrets. You know, I wish, uh, anything you would change. I wish Trump maybe didn't, wasn't elected, (laughs) uh, you know, but you know, of what I control, I mean, I wouldn't change it. No. Last question for you is, are you going to be doing Hop Farm next year? Absolutely. Okay. And can you, for those who don't know what Hop Farm is, it seems like this is really the hands-on, Yeah. get up close with the hops experience that you provide. What does that entail? Yeah. So when we started growing hops, people would want to come out and learn, so they'd want to volunteer. And so we had volunteer days. We call them work days. And where we would feed them and let give them beer and they would work and it wouldn't be a hard work day. It would be more of a learning experience, but then the department of labor made it unlawful to have volunteers. So, uh, and we didn't want to get another large fine from a government agency. So we, um, have this thing called hop school, which is actually under the umbrella of the California or the, um, center for land-based learning out of winners. So that's an educational, an ag, nonprofit educational platform to teach urban kids where their food comes from. So we kind of partnered with the Center for Land-Based Learning and this is an opportunity for adults to learn where how hops grow. So one, usually it's the first Saturday of every month starting in April, finishing in August. And um, whatever we're doing that time of year on the farm, that's what we do. We start at six, seven o'clock in the morning. you work for a couple hours. There has to be a financial transaction. So there's, it's $30. We buy you lunch, we get you beer, and then 10 bucks goes to the Center for Land-Based Learning of that $30. So our, we don't make any money out of it. All we're doing is creating an opportunity where if people want to learn either, if they want to grow hops in their, you know, on their, in their backyard, or they want to grow hops on their 30 acres that they just pulled out of Ammons because, you know, something happened they can come and learn and see and kick the tires and I'm usually there and I'll answer as many questions as possibly can. And, um, and it's just to kind of share. We, people have shared with us and it's an opportunity for us to share back. And maybe some potential suppliers for hop harvest down the road. Maybe sometimes we get some employees out of, but usually, um, <laughs> you know, the funny part is this past year, I think we had like six real farmers, like these guys, like they all were farming. Yeah. I grow rice couple thousand acres of rice and I want to grow 10 acres, 20 acres, 30 acres of hops and a couple guys like that. And we've never seen that kind of those, that kind of a hop school student. And I think what's happening is, is that a lot of the ag out there, whether it's walnuts, salmons, rice, like it's kind of saturated. And so the farmers are smart. So they're looking out and they're saying, okay, what's the next thing? And, you know, I'm sure they got a lot of things on that list, but hops was probably one of them. 
Well, J.E., continued success with the hop farm and growing it figuratively and, and literally. And thank you very much for being our guinea pig first mini podcast. I'm good at that. Anyway, you're very, very good. And for the rest of you, this is the first of a few mini podcasts we're going to do before the main event in October, the Brewmasters. So stay tuned. We'll keep uploading podcasts. And uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Vanessa. Appreciate the opportunity.